Hello and welcome back to another episode of the EMG Gold podcast. My name is Sam Boyassi and I'm joined today by a very, very exciting guest. In fact, I've been looking forward to this podcast for quite a while now. It is Emma Clayton, CEO of Grey Bear Consultancy. Hi, Emma. Hi, how are you? Very good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, good. Settling into this uh, this change. Tell me about it. If you don't mind, Emma, though, I just want to quickly tell our listeners a bit more about you before we dive straight into the interview questions, because I can't wait to get started on those. Um, so for those of you who don't know Emma, Emma is a passionate marketer with over 20 years experience in brand development and communications within the healthcare sector. She began her career working in-house for pharmaceutical companies such as Janssen, Estellas, Teva, CSL Burring and Novo Nordisk before deciding to launch her own agency, which is Grey Bear Consultancy. Alongside her role as CEO, she is an active campaigner for the premature and sick babies charity Bliss an expert patient on the RCOG Women's Voice Panel, the founder of the Women in Health NHS Leadership Programme, and recently the host of the podcast series, Female Leaders with Courage. Wow, that <laughs> background. So you can really see why I've been so excited to do this. Um, but I'm going to dive straight in because I can't wait. So without much further ado, my first question for you, Emma, what motivated you to leave the pharmaceutical industry and, and start Grey Bear Consultancy? Do you know, I get that asked that all the time. Uh, that's the question I get asked most. Um, and I still I still can't quite put my finger on it because it was a combination of quite a few things, really. I think it's one of those things where, you know, I'm in my 40s now. Uh, some people attribute it to a midlife crisis. But I think it was just a little bit more than that, that, you know, I'd held various roles in, uh, in the industry, as you've outlined. Um, I started carrying the bag in sales. Um, with Sanofi and then uh, sort of graduated up into brand management and marketing management. Uh, and latterly, I headed up uh, all of the medical education and communications, um, external communications for Nova Nordisk. Mm -hmm. And I, I was also a single mum. I was raising my daughter by myself and working so closely with the NHS, uh, particularly in the last few years of my career, I, I developed this... Um, curiosity as to what pharma could do more of when it came to their relationships with the NHS and I just wanted to do something where I could bring the industry not just one company but the industry and the NHS together and really build programs um, and initiatives that brought the NHS and pharma much closer together where you know the programs were not necessarily all about what pharma wanted but actually what the NHS needed and particularly whilst the NHS has you know been facing some of its biggest challenges in the whole of its um, lifetime and so I decided that I wanted to just go and make a bit more of a difference and um, everything we do is about providing sort of wow moments and giving security to our clients um, and just I, I guess really working on programs and projects that aren't just for the client but are the wow moments for the NHS as well where they say gosh you know we've really we've really needed this thank you um that's what floats our boat um and also uh, I'm a big uh, champion of flexible working and I wanted to create um a home for people uh, naturally women have gravitated towards us because they tend to need that flexible working that bit more but for people that needed 
somewhere to work and be brilliant outside of that corporate bubble of nine to five. So uh, that's kind of how Grey Bear was born. It was just that need for doing something more to make a difference to the NHS and provide uh, opportunities for brilliant women that don't fit the nine to five model. That was a bit of a ramble, sorry. <laughs> no, absolutely fantastic. And and how does working in external communications compare to working in the internal marketing department that you were working in within the pharma organisations? It has it has its opportunities and it has its challenges. Actually, we um, I have a very active mind. I love being busy, as you can see. I um, see opportunities in everything and love solving problems. And I really thrive with a variety of work. And, you know, I think I've become quite good at balancing lots of priorities, you know, rather than just having one priority, which is kind of where we were before I just specialised in diabetes. Um, I wanted to keep my mind very busy and and, and look across all sorts of different platforms because the NHS doesn't just need diabetes support, it needs everything. And so I love having that variety. We work across lots of different therapy areas now. And, you know, not pigeonholed with one speciality, but really offering, uh, you know, different ways of how different uh, therapy areas are addressing some of the challenges they've got for patients and HCP. So on that side, I love it. Um, I guess on the other side, you know, we're not as close to the strategic planning as I once was, where you can contribute and really shape the strategy. Now we, you know, have the strategy and then shape the the tactics around it and obviously you know we work in partnership and we do feed in but we're not we're not actually you know I'm not personally creating it which I used to do um but I I just love what we do and I think that um whether I was in pharma or whether I was in Grey Bear I've always loved being able to make a difference to medical communications um and I think also at the moment my um my new way of thinking i say new probably the last six months is looking at how we can now um address the issues we've got in social care because that is crying out for support and i think it's a place that i'd really like to take some of our pharma clients into um so yeah it gives you opportunity to sort of think differently when you're out of one particular company yeah, and kind of that thinking differently and, and looking at new challenges that you guys can help have an impact on and, and, and solve, I guess. With the current situation that we're in, how do you think the pharma industry needs to adapt their communication strategies during COVID-19? Well, I think if anything was ever going to push this industry forward into adapting digital ways, it's this, isn't it? You know, we've yeah. all been forced into adapting our um, digital communications. And I think that, you know, 20% of the work we do actually is in fintech. And I've always tried as a, you know, CIM qualified person to try and engage and, and look and watch at what other industries are doing, because I recognize that we are quite, um, we're quite behind the curve in, in adopting and adapting to new technologies and new ways of communicating and engaging and, you know, um, showing up as marketeers and so we're working with a fintech client um, about 20% of what we do they're streets ahead of what pharmaceutical are doing and how they're engaging and using digital technology to really shape what they they do um, patients in the NHS are they're becoming experts in what they do 
they're looking online for information they're wanting to engage and especially in pandemics where you know there there are times of real great soul searching and change and uncertainty and you know the first place that we all go to is for information we you know we need that information and I just don't feel at the moment that as an industry we're we're there we're not we're not there digitally um, accessible for patients and HCPs as much as we could and other industries are so I think um, I, I think there's three things that pharma probably need to do I think they need to look at their internal communications and I think some people like you you know you you can see are really adapting internally to that working from home um, and using the digital platforms there. And, you you know, some people are doing brilliant jobs. Some people you can see really need help. But I think those external communications with the healthcare practitioners and, um, and patients really needs to step up a gear now, whether that be um, supporting the reps that are at home, uh, email campaigns and, tally health and e-details and all of those sorts of things and you know the obvious choice is putting all of those online events uh you know all of those events that got cancelled mm-hmm. onto online events and you know zoom we've seen their shares you know grow exponentially in the last month but it, it's more than that actually i think this is an opportunity for pharma to really look at other industries and look at how you know telecoms and consumers and uh, fmcg are, are embracing you know they're third party partners but their end users which you know for us is obviously nhs social care and then you know the patients so um i think i think this will be it i think the the challenge we have is we are so highly regulated but then i look at fintech and they are also but they're still um you know able to produce some incredible mm-hmm. campaigns that really do change behavior and engage in a um you know, more empowering for the end user. And I, I, I just, I guess, really laid the gauntlet for ABPI and PMCPA to use this time to work with industry, produce some really clear guidance on how we can take that digital technology um, and have a window of experimentation, maybe give us 12 months to look and play and, and experiment without that fear of getting into trouble. Because you see it all the time, don't you? Where you know companies say, oh, "I'd really love to do that. I really want to do that. I want to do a social media campaign. I want to do a, yeah. a website dedicated for you know that particular online learning." And then look around and, "Oh, I don't want to be the first because I don't want to be the one that gets into trouble." And and I think that this is an opportunity now where we need to just give give ourselves a bit of a break while we learn an experiment of how we can do that without the fear of reprisal. Really, so I think. There's all sorts of different ways that this is going to affect the industry, but I see so much more opportunity than I do challenge, actually. Absolutely. It's a bit of a wake-up call, isn't it? Hopefully, in terms of, right, the opportunities are there. We are behind. Let's be realistic about that. Let's be honest about that. And, and, and yeah, let's use these opportunities that we've got, so to say. Um, what about the general public, then? Do you think that COVID-19 will affect the way that the general public perceives pharma? Because I've, I've been trying to do a bit of research on that, but there isn't really anything much out there apart from the usual stuff that you that you get about how the public perceives the pharma industry. But I'm guessing there are a lot of opportunities for that to be shaped slightly differently as well. Yeah, I think that there is, actually. And um, we're starting to see that as the NHS stakeholders, GPs, 
you know, nurses, uh, everybody's been pulled into the front line, that actually this is the opportunity to engage with uh, patients. This is the time for us to sort of step in and, and address some of the concerns and fears that patients will be having and are scared to, you know, go to their GP because we're being told, you know, stay at home and the NHS, you know, protect it. And even yesterday on the government briefing, Chris Whitty was saying, but if you are really poorly, still do call us, you know, they're encouraging people because people really have taken that stay at home message almost to the other level. Um, So I think this is where pharma can really step in. Um, It's interesting you said about having uh, sort of a bit of an insight. We did a little bit of social listening ourselves and I think that you know more than ever the public are really emotionally invested in pharmaceutical industry Mm. and their own health at the moment because you know we're now all suddenly faced with having to think about our own mortality regardless of your age and your you know background your health um we're all starting to think what what if it's me what if that you know that finger's pointing at me and it's my turn um and so people are really starting to emotionally invest in in their health and starting to really look online um when you look at six we did a little bit of a a a search and 16 of the largest pharmaceutical brands globally in some of the conversations we picked up about 40 percent uh increase in uh, the last 30 days, of which 36% were looking for things relating to the pandemic, you know, their condition, their diabetes, their asthma, their cancer, whatever it might be. Um, and I think that it falls into three three different sections that the pharma industry could start to look at. Um, obviously, people are looking for um, access to information and research. So the vaccine, you know, everybody, when is the next vaccine? When is it? When is it? Um uh, but they're also looking about the supply of their own product. And we, we've seen lots of areas and pockets of stockpiling. And, you know, if I'm staying at home, I want to make sure I've got, you know, two years of medicines with me. Um, and I think that, you know, we have a duty of care there to communicate and, and work with the, you know, the public and, and patients with that. And I think the third is we're all in an incredibly heightened state of anxiety, the unknown. And I think uh, as I've said earlier you know education and information is what we need and I think this is well you know again as an industry we need to step up and uh, provide that and I think you know we need to look at how we can do that um, you know not just as individual companies but as, as an industry and actually it's really interesting because I remember when we used to have all of the scandals about you know oh these GPs got taken to a golf club and you know there were yeah. there were a few naughty people a- along the way and it really tarnished the reputation of the whole industry which is which is why we've now led to being so you know overzealous in in some parts of the regulations um, you know we were voted the least trustworthy sector alongside banking at one point um, mm-hmm. I think now it's the time to shine. I think this is the best opportunity now for us to really show up and say, hang on a second, you know, we can be trusted. We are responsible. Um, and it's really great to see, you know, some of the companies that are starting to to do that, um, you know, part of it. And I think, you know, in terms of their, their corporate brand and their employer brand, the first thing people look at is, you know, how are you treating your employees as well so um you know the the three things I articulated before are kind of what patients need but I think there's also what people are looking for and I think the first thing that people will look for in the you know public perception of farmers how they're treating 
their staff and their employees and you know I think we've done a, a brilliant job of that we've kept employees safe um you, you know we're keeping people as much as we can in jobs probably more than any other industry um mm-hmm. we're addressing those immediate challenges of supply chains technology you know the business partners that keep the business as usual and that business continuity so I think you know we're doing a fantastic job there absolutely um, and sorry no keep going no, I was going to say, and I think, I think just once they, it levels off, you know, these are all the sort of short-term needs, but I think as it levels off, you know, we're starting to look at, you know, budgets and plans. And um, and I think actually as we really start to look at, okay, what's next, I would say, and of course I would say this because I'm a communication specialist, engage, 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 engage. Let's get HCPs and patients involved in what we now decide is what we think is best this is the time to say, well, hang on a second, what digital support do you need? How is your mental health? What is social care needing? What is the elderly population needing? What are those vulnerable patient groups that have been shielded at home for 12 weeks needing? How do we support them to integrate again? How do we support, um, you know, those with learning disabilities, all of them with comorbidities, all of them needing some kind of, well, what, what do I now do? We're all coming out of this with that big question mark. And I think, I, I would really urge, um, you know, pharma companies to really look at that and engage, engage, engage. I think this is where I wouldn't be stripping away the budget. I'd be investing it in this because we're, we've got a whole new, you know, when you look at change management curves as we sort of come out the other side, we've got a whole heap of communication that needs to be put in place. Um, you know, that could be training, it could be solutions, you know, whatever it is. But I think we have to, first of all, ask what, do you now need from us brilliant i was going to go on to kind of how the pharma industry and the nhs are currently collaborating and working a lot closer together what would you say what what could pharma and the nhs learn from one another in in terms of their respective strengths right now i think about this a lot actually and um I think you can see there's a significant amount of efforts globally, you know, not just the NHS and UK Pharma, but globally to sort of diagnose and treat and prevent, you know, the impact of this virus. Um, And I think it's really great to see companies really stepping up and working in partnership and donating their compounds and, you know, collaborating. It's lovely to see. I mean, gosh, it's, it's unbelievable to see GSK and Sanofi announcing their collaboration. And, you know, I can see other companies starting to you know, uh, have the shoots of, of that as well. And I think the greatest challenge and opportunity is now here. Um, but again, I've alluded to it just just now, is my biggest concern personally that I look at is social care. And I actually think that pharma and NHS and the joint workings over the years are really starting to bear the fruits. I think we've forgotten as quite a lot of areas have done about this sort of social care, adult social care, elderly, vulnerable, learning disability population. Um, and I think that actually Pharma and NHS should work together now to try and solve that conundrum with the government um, and with local government and look at, you know, how do we educate in care homes? How do we provide information and patient care and the basics? Uh, I mean, if I just look at diabetes, you know, you look at all those uh, elderly population in care homes, with lots of comorbidities, really high risk patients. And there are people that are 
you know, they've probably had about two hours of training on diabetes care. Um, and I think that it's really time now that we gave them the support to, 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 you know, to look after these patients and, you know, the NHS have got this incredible burden, but actually, you know, if we can help social care take some of that burden and, and really reapportion where all of the care happens and the support and the education and the upskilling, then I think, you know, we're starting to really tackle that huge challenge. Um, so I do definitely think that the biggest priority will be how do we address um, social care? And I think pharma can really lend a, a hand with that. Um, and I think also the thing that struck me is for a long time, we've had these conversations about, oh, your drug's so expensive, we can't afford it. And it has, you know, great outcomes. And I think now people are starting to see the process of R&D and that you can't just, you know, suddenly say, oh, hang on a second, I need a cure for that or I need a vaccine for that. You know, there's an awful lot of work goes on in the background, um, a cost and time and trial and error and experimentation. Oh, gosh, that's not work. Let's try again. And what about this compound? Does this work? And you know the 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 time it, it and all of that effort and ten years of bringing something to market typically um, is why you know drugs are priced the way that they are. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that there's a real understanding there, possibly that's starting to come to light. Uh, you know that this isn't just oh farmer, what are you doing? You know you just sat on your laurels. Where are where are all the treatments? there's a big process and I think we're starting to see that because the, the, the light's shining on, on um, particularly the coronavirus and then that leads me into thinking that actually you know we need to step up on the access strategies I mean when you have a crisis what what happens is it really illuminates and exacerbates and, and you know enlarges the problems that are in the in the ecosystem yeah. and you know R&D and come to market and the pricing the access uh you know it, it you can't just suddenly say oh by the way we've got a license and it's available we've now got all of these hurdles to bring a you know a drug to market so I think that there'll be a bit of a you know realization that you know we've probably got a bit too tough with our access and uh, and we should have some really clear uptake strategies for when we have new medicines that can really make a difference um and again I you know I come back to this all the time and of course they would because it's my background but you know education 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 I just don't think we can give enough of it um the NHS has gone through an inordinate amount of um cutbacks and one of the things that I've seen particularly and heard from the networks that I've got is that the first thing that's being cut is education. And mm-hmm. that's not just, you know, oh, um, h- how do I prescribe this? This is, you know, disease awareness. This is new people coming in. This is, I hate that. I hate when people say soft skills, you know, such as communication skills or leadership skills, because actually they're the most important skills. They're the things that are going to lead the NHS out of some of the challenges as they go into, um, you know, these sort of PCNs and ICTs and STPs. And, you know, it's all about working together. And actually, if you don't have the skills of how to do that, you're not going to be as productive. So I think, again, that's another opportunity for, um, you know, how we can really support coming out of this um, and support the NHS. And if I dare may say... I also think we should do more together, farmer and NHS, to bring more women leaders 
forward. Do you know what? That is just something that I was going to go into. I'm so glad that you said that. <laughs> because I was, I was just going to ask you about um, the programme that you're the founder of, Women in Health, um, which I understand aims to help women in the NHS secure senior positions. So I love this. What inspired you to create that network? And could you just describe how it works a bit more, please? Yeah. So, oh, gosh. Um, I mean, pharma has changed dramatically. I mean, you wouldn't 10 years ago have thought that, you know, the largest pharmaceutical company, uh, GSK, would have Emma Walmsley as its CEO. It's phenomenal. Mm. And 65% of the workforce are now female. It's a higher rate than um technology which i think is about 26 percent, and financial services i think it's just under half um but actually it's very similar to to the nhs 25 percent are actually in leadership positions so if you then look at the nhs 77 percent of the workforce are women and that is the largest employer of women that we have in the uk and only 20 yeah really? yeah oh, La- wow. the largest uh, employer of women is the nhs but 22% are leaders. So actually, they've got an even larger chasm between workforce and female leader ratio. And I was just reading a magazine, actually, it could have even been about the appointment of um, of Emma in GSK, actually. And um, I think it's, it's great that we're doing all of this stuff in the pharma industry. But again, you know, having so many friends and and colleagues in the NHS I I just know that they're crying out for that support and I've already alluded to the fact that they just don't get leadership support and they don't get these softer skills you know inverted commas softer skills given to them they were cut with all of the austerity measures and we know that women on a leadership board create greater productivity and better outcomes because you have diverse thinking and you know naturally physiologically neuroscientifically women's brains think differently to men and we approach things differently and it's not right and it's not wrong it's just different and actually that provides this great diversity of thinking great solutions to problems thinking about you know uh, people just as much as task whatever that might be and I looked uh I did some searching about, you know, who, what social networks were out there and if I could sort of lend a hand because I thought, well, I've got 20 years of experience here. Um, you know, I'd like to give some of the stuff I've, you know, learned along the way and have now become qualified in, in discommunications and five dysfunctions and all the different things about how you can, you know, really evolve as a team and as a leader. Mm-hmm. And there was nothing. There was absolutely nothing. There was one official group that was uh, an official group. And I think one of the things with hindsight I now know is that official groups don't tend to build community because people are always, they've always got their game face on in their polit- uh, in their professional capacity. So I just thought, you know, I'm just going to set up a community and if anybody comes to it and, you know, wants to have anything, they can, they can come, I don't know, maybe it might help 50, 100 people. And I set up a Twitter network and just started tweeting about things and a website that just had resources uh, and, and sort of almost a curation of all of the different things out there and for people to read and just get involved with. And I have to say, after three months, there was something like 5,000 people following it and tweeting and involving me and wanting to get involved. And so I started to talk to senior leaders to say, well, look, share your story with me and let's share it with the network. And the engagement was just so high. I just thought, gosh, we're onto something here. So I just made it a little bit more official and 
you know got a logo and made the the website a bit more official and you know it's still very much in its infancy from what I could do with it because it's something that I do as as a hobby outside of the day job if you like and as a single working mum and a business owner there's not many hours in the day left um yeah but I really I'm starting now while we're you know at home and time to think a little bit more about what we can do with this group and uh you know I've, I've met some incredible women and I still I'm working with some incredible women in the NHS and so looking at building a faculty podcast webinars we're in this virtual world now so it would be silly not to take all of all of that and 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 have some network virtual network meetings and we've got ten and a half thousand women now we're sort of about a year in um and that's just organic growth where people have said oh no we've got this here so um it's kind of grown more than I ever thought and it's become that sort of second child (laughs) it's quite yeah. it's quite needy and I, I guess I'd love a bit of support with it actually to really take it where it needs to be but I just feel so incredibly passionate that you know we need more women to step up and it, it's not just about um, you know giving the opportunities because I think the NHS are really quite good at giving the opportunities and this is what I've learned doing this network is this isn't about opportunities actually this is about um, how women actually feel themselves about themselves and the one thing that I think is working for this network is it's a community and even from tribal days you know the the men would go out and they would you know kill the you know the 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 the, you know put the food on the table and come back but the women would build the community and women still love to be in a community women still like to be able to talk to someone and say I'm feeling a bit you know like this what do you think and we're empowered by external forces uh, quite a lot more when we problem solve and it's just a bit of a safe haven for women to sort of say well how did you do it and what what did you do to overcome this challenge and and, and help me and mentor me and um, it's very very authentic it's not polished in any way but I'm actually quite proud of that and I think that's what makes it more engaging for these people. It's absolutely incredible so inspiring thank you so much for telling us a bit more about that. Um, with Farmer then when it comes to championing their female workers, because we talk about this quite a lot in our in our magazine Gold, um, we we publish a lot of infographics about the changes within female leadership in the industry. We we talk a lot with um, the Healthcare Business Women Association about this as well. But but when it comes to championing their female workers, what is Farmer doing right, and what could they improve upon when it comes to championing those those female workers? I think. Do you know, I think that the first thing they have to do is congratulate themselves for where they've got to because they are doing, you know, we've I've sort of said we're behind the curve on some of the digital stuff, but when it comes to gender equality, farmer are really conscious of it and are really committed to doing this. I think the mistake, and it's something I've learned along the way, you know, I don't profess to know everything about this, but I, I've, you know, I'm so hugely passionate about it and talk to so many people. And I think the mistake we all are guilty of making at some point is that this is all about opportunities and actually I think we're all aware that we have to create more opportunities for for women in the workforce and to step into leadership roles I think we get that I think that the bit that we could really improve on and I say this actually across pharma uh, any industry actually <clears throat> excuse me is that I guess there are three other things to consider. I think the first is that women lead differently. And 
women are almost in this position where they're damned if they do and they're damned if they don't because if they are assertive and strong opinions and stick to their guns, they're considered bossy or curt or aggressive. But then if they are quite nurturing, they're considered weak or timid. And I actually think that we need to bring in uh, authenticity of leadership style because everybody is trying to go into the box of, well, well, my boss is like that, so I'm going to have to be like that too to be considered. And I think we need to sort of almost come away from that and learn, you know, leadership styles with authenticity. So I think that's the first thing is, you know, oh, well, she's not strong enough to be a leader or, you know, she's too strong to be a leader, whatever it is. I think, you know, women are damned if they do and damned if they don't. I think there's also a piece about uh, psychological safety for women is greater. They don't want to look silly you know if there's a job advert and there's 10 things on there there's you know a lot of people will, will quote this you know a woman will only go for that job if she hits nine out of the 10 a man will go oh well god yeah I've got six out of 10 give it give it a go and they go for it so I think that there's this psychological safety that women need to sort of overcome themselves and be encouraged to overcome is that you know we don't have to be perfect to be successful. We don't have to tick every box to be great at what we do. Um, there's a lot of anxiety and imposter syndrome in women. Uh, I mean, I know it's in men as well, but you know that's there. And I think we need to encourage and nurture and believe in women um, a lot more so that they can overcome their own internal barriers because actually that is what stops more women stepping forward than the opportunities around them. It's that well, actually, can I do this? Can I can I do that and look after the kids? Because actually leading on is that, um, you know, a quarter of women between the age of 50 and 64 care for other people. And that's not just the children, but that's elderly, sick, um, you know, the parents, whatever. Um, and I think that there is more that needs to be done to support women to, to be able to think that they can have it all. Um, whatever all might be. The other thing to consider is this um, sort of menopausal support and this psychological safety around women that are experiencing menopause. And we know that this age group are the fastest growing demographic in the workplace, which is as a, a byproduct of the fact that we are providing more opportunities for women. And there are more women that, you know, in, in, uh, in the good old days or the bad old days, whichever you want to call it, you know, would have stayed at home. They'd have had the children, stayed at home, given up the career. Mm. But now they are coming back to the workplace and they, they, they're coming back to the workplace and, and, and they are able to have it all, the career and the children. Um, and they're taking that opportunity, which is fantastic. But actually with that is, you know, 50% of the population will experience menopause at some point. And uh, I know from firsthand experience that, you know, it really does throw you off piste. I had um, a hysterectomy in my very, very early 40s because of an undiagnosed condition that, you know, we there was no option in the end. And I crashed into this surgical menopause that just left me bewildered and astounded and alone. And, you know, you forget people's names. You have not just the, the you know, the the physical symptoms we all know about the hot flushes and the sleepless nights but you have memory loss poor concentration lethargy lack of motivation and when you're such a you know normally active very uh active mind active body person 
it really can throw you so that you think, well, I don't know if I'm going to go for that position because I don't want to be sat in the C-suite, you know, not able to think or process or think on my feet or, mm. you know, I've got to be at my A-game constantly. And and I think that when a third of the workplace are over 50 and an interesting statistic of, you know, 75 to 80% of menopausal women are in work, I think we just have to do a lot more to cater for that and to support these women. So I think, it, you know, it's not just about opportunities. I think we're doing a really great job with that. I think that it's not what the company can do. I think it's actually what the woman can do and how we can support the woman to, it's okay to not remember your colleague's name that you've worked with for 12 years. It's okay when you worked on something the day before to have forgotten it because it will come back and I think the anxiety that that invokes within women really creates more problems for them in trying to prove themselves and uh, but also in their, in their confidence have you read the book invisible women at all Emma I haven't but somebody did send it to me to read about two weeks ago and I in our network there's a lot of women talking about it and um they they talk about this unconscious bias about uh, uh women and how yeah i think it's incredible and i agree with it actually um you know there's a lot of things happening in the workplace where oh we'll just have a breakfast meeting at half eight because everybody's diary's busy tomorrow it's okay we'll dial in at eight half eight we can all do that well you know a lot of women can't because they're on the school run likewise you know they might want to get home to their children and and spend the evening rather than I don't know uh, in some industries you know might be going to the pub or whatever um you know or or let's have this evening meeting uh or let's have a conference where we have to stay away from home for nights a week I just think we just need to reconfigure some of this because if we're inviting women back into the workplace we need to make it accessible um so I, we're doing a really good job but I think there are other things to consider Brilliant. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, really, really appreciate that. I wanted to talk to you about something slightly different. Uh, this is my last question to you, by the way, I promise. <laughs> so we, we are currently completing as a company the EMG 20 in 20 challenge. Um, obviously, this has kind of been put on pause for a bit, given the current situation. But it's basically consisting of a lot of um, extreme physical challenges that we're doing together as teams and companies. And you have completed several extreme challenges of your own. So what has been the most outlandish situation that you have found yourself in along the way, Emma? Yeah, I think I'm I'm a bit of a glutton for punishment. I think um, I do like, to, I don't know why, but I do like to push myself out of my comfort zone. I just have this thing where people will say, oh God, what's the next thing you're going to do? I, think, I guess I'm just really active and, uh, you know, obviously I'm a very passionate campaigner for the charity, which is, bless you mentioned. Um, I've done a few things. I've, you know, done a few half marathons. Uh, I'm a bit too old for that now. My knees won't do that. And so I decided that, you know, I'd do a bit more leisurely walk and ended up doing 100k South Coast Challenge. Very leisurely. Very, very leisurely. Yeah. Over a whole weekend. Um, Winter walks in the snow, you know, around London. That that was uh, frostbite on your fingers and but um, I think that I think the most outlandish was the fact that I have an incredible fear of heights. I can't even go over a bridge that's over a river without having to go into, you know, 
breathe, breathe, breathe. <laughs> and I decided that I thought it'd be a really good idea to do a 13,000 foot skydive. Oh my God. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, and actually, you know, somebody up there was saying to me, don't do this because the clouds were really thick. And uh, the, we, I think I was something like, I don't know, 50th. They do something like, I don't know, uh, 17 a day for example there's you know probably they go up every hour with about 10 in the in the plane and they just throw them out and come back down and take you back up and I think I was not actually due to go up till about four o'clock and I I should have said yeah it's cloudy but I didn't I persisted and persisted and persisted and had everybody wait with me and we played Candy Crush like I've never played Candy Crush before waiting for these clouds to evaporate so we could get up there and eventually this beautiful sunny afternoon came and about four or five o'clock in the evening on a Sunday in Kent uh we got up there but then we were up there for probably an hour circling because about that time on a Sunday there was so much air traffic coming in from France that we couldn't actually we couldn't get thrown out um and so you have all this time to think and look down and think this is really high (laughs) Um, and then I was the last one. I said, no, I'll be last. I want to see how everybody else does it. And I was such a chicken. I cried and cried and cried. And um, eventually I got I got sort of, you know, they sit on the, the edge of the plane and you're hanging out of it with them. And I was saying, no, no, no. And the guy thought I was saying, go, go, go. And he threw me and I forgot all of my training and we spun and oh. I will never do it again. I got to the ground and I said, I'm never leaving the ground ever again. <laughs> a lot of people love skydives. I It's actually increased my fear of heights. So the most outlandish thing I've ever done and will never, ever do again. But, you know, I really believe in bravery and courage and, and pushing yourself. And I, you know, raising my daughter to never regret anything, only regret the things that you didn't do. And so, you know, I can never regret that because I experienced something that is quite remarkable. Um, so mental, but, you know, did, I did a good thing. <laughs> Absolutely incredible. I've got a severe... Um, I think you guys are going to be great with your challenge. Oh, we, we'll see. I mean, they, there are some some challenges that are also based on heights. And I've already made it very clear that I won't be doing those ones because I've got an extreme fear of heights. But you've now inspired me. So maybe I will reconsider that. <laughs> But, but thank you so much, Emma, for, for taking the time to do this interview with us. Uh, I certainly learned a lot, uh, and I hope some of our listeners have as well. So I really do appreciate you, again, taking the time to do this. Um, and yeah, thank you. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us. And we'll see you again next week for another episode of the EMG Gold podcast.